Hello and welcome to Romance Aloud, celebrating 60 years of the Romantic Novelists Association in the UK. I'm Ian Skillicorn and in this special podcast series, I'm talking to RNA members about their own books and the authors from the association's 60-year history whose work means the most to them. This time I'm delighted to bring you my interview with the chair of the RNA, author Alison May. When I spoke to Alison, I started by asking her about the variety of jobs she's had from shop assistant to teacher and whether she'd always written, no matter what other job she'd been doing. Actually, no. And I I suspect that's relatively unusual. I think most authors tend to say, oh, you know, I've always written, I've written from childhood. But I, well, I always think I came to it relatively late. So I did a creative writing degree as an adult, sort of by accident. I started it off just as a kind of evening class as something that might be fun and ended up with a whole six-year degree, which was genuinely slightly by accident. But I said that to my mum relatively recently, and she disagreed with me. She said that I had, as a small child, wanted to be a journalist, which I didn't remember, but there must have been something there about writing and telling stories that had then been, I don't know, suppressed and bubbled out again later. Well, given all the jobs you've had, when you actually did start to write, were you able to draw on having met lots of different types of people and and experienced all those different types of situations? Definitely, yes. Not always in kind of very super direct ways. So sometimes it's very direct. So I've written one book, Midsummer Dreams, which is set in a university and I've been a sessional lecturer in universities. I'm writing a book at the moment that's set in a clothes shop, which was my student job. I worked in a women's clothes store for three years. Um, So sometimes it's very direct, but a lot of the time I've done a lot of customer service jobs. I've done a lot of teaching jobs and I worked for the Citizens Advice Bureau service. So they're all jobs where you meet a lot of people. So I think that in terms of just meeting a huge variety of people and also things like the sort of ear for dialogue and the rhythms of how people talk and the ways that different characters talk, is something that I've definitely picked up through sort of 20 years of pre-writing working life. So what was the first piece of work that you actually had published? So my first novel that was published was a book called Sweet Nothing, which is based on Much Ado About Nothing, the Shakespeare play, but reset into the 21st century as a romantic comedy novel. And that idea was actually my degree dissertation. I wrote the opening 8,000 words, I think, as my degree dissertation. After having six years at university of intending to be a very serious and important playwright, about six weeks before I was first time my dissertation in, I had to go and fess up to my supervisor that I hadn't written any of the very serious and important play I was supposed to be submitting. And could I start again from scratch? And I wrote the beginning of a rom-com novel, which in a much revised and heavily reworked form went on to be my first published book. And can you talk us through that process? I mean, did you find an agent first? Who did you approach? I wasn't agented initially. So my first five books were with a small independent publisher who specialised in romance and women's fiction. Sweet Nothing, I think I counted recently. I think Sweet Nothing had 38 rejections. And I do, I do a lot of writing tutoring now, and I quite often see students who've had like 10 or 15 rejections and are terribly disheartened. And I'm able to say, ah, that's nothing. <laughs> Sweet Nothing had 38 rejections. Um, and I sold it direct to a publisher who took an unagented submissions. And I did two full-length novels and three novellas with them. 
And then subsequent to that, I then got an, an agent and moved on. And since then, I've been published with Legend Press and Harper HQ. So I've kind of gone through both selling direct to a publisher and through a literary agent. Well, one thing I've definitely learned from this series is just how much perseverance pays off. It's amazing how many authors you may see who are doing well without realising that they've really had to persevere to get to that point. Absolutely. And that never changes during a writing career. I think there's a perception that getting published is really hard, but once you're published, that's it. But every time you're out of contract, every new book, every new genre, every new idea, every slight change of pace is a new negotiation and a new attempt to sell a book as if you're selling for the first time, really. So it's a constant um, kind of flux of rejection, rejection, acceptance, another rejection, all of those things right through a writing career. It's not a sort of one shot and then everything's sorted. Yes, I think that's important to bear in mind. So what made you go from wanting to be a great playwright to wanting to write romantic comedy? I think that it was a recognition, firstly, of what I actually read. And I have very eclectic tastes. And certainly at that time was reading a huge amount of romantic comedy and the sort of lighter end of commercial women's fiction. And so recognising that, and I think writing what you love is a really good starting point for any writer. What I was doing without realising it, I think, was trying to be the sort of writer that probably being in an academic process makes you think you ought to be. And all of those external pressures make you think you ought to be rather than the sort of writer that I wanted to be and the sort of writer that I am. And I love romance and I love writing comedy. My last three books have been quite serious and I've really enjoyed doing those, but I've just started writing my first comedy for, I think, four years and I'm loving it. So sometimes I think it is, what do you actually love? What do you love reading? What do you love watching on TV? Because if you love something, that's going to show in the writing. You've written lots of short stories too, which have appeared in anthologies. What appeals to you about short stories compared to novels? And what do you think makes a good short story? One of the challenges of writing novels, to state the alarmingly obvious, is that they're really, really long. So it takes a really, really long time and you will inevitably make many, many, many wrong turns on the way. And the first draft that you write will be awful. And all of that is really frustrating. And a lot of the frustrations are there with writing short stories as well. But you can get through all of those frustrations in a day or a couple of days rather than nine months. So there's something very much more manageable about writing a short story. You can decide you're going to do it and achieve it in a time frame that feels much more comfortable than thinking I'm going to write a novel six months later. You're still writing the same novel. Short stories for me work when there is a simplicity and a focus to the idea. Most of my short stories and most of my most successful short stories are effectively just one scene, but it's one scene that has a beginning, a middle and an end, a resolution within that scene. Different short story writers work in different ways, but for me, I tend not to do a lot of change of time and place and progression in a short story. I like short stories that have a really tight focus on a particular moment in time, but a moment in time that tells a whole story in itself. Well, you also write as Juliet Bell in collaboration with another author. Could you tell us a bit more about that? 
So Juliet Bell, we say, writes reimaginings of misunderstood classics. So Juliet Bell is myself and Janet Gover, who under her own name writes Australian rural romances and family dramas. And Juliet came about at a Romantic Novelist Association conference where Janet and I had both given presentations and we'd both used Wuthering Heights as an example in our sessions. We didn't know each other particularly well at this point, but we got chatting afterwards and she said, oh, I've always wanted to write an adaptation of Wuthering Heights, but I think it has to be set in the north of England. I think it's so wedded to the north of England. And Janet is Australian, which is, you know, Southern and then some. So she wasn't comfortable writing sort of Northern English characters. I'm from North Yorkshire. And so after a couple of glasses of wine, half jokingly, I said, oh, well, I can write Northern. And we laughed and went, oh, we should write it together. And then about a week later, when the dust had settled and um, we'd both sobered up, I was thinking, that's actually not an awful idea. Um, So I emailed her and we met for lunch. And the more wine we drank over lunch, the better an idea it seemed. And so it sort of started literally out of an off-the-cuff conversation at an RNA event, which is one of the lovely things about the RNA and about being with other authors, is that it absolutely does feed creativity and it feeds ideas and it creates these collaborations and all of this really exciting stuff. So yeah, we published The Heights, which is Wuthering Heights set against the backdrop of the miners' strike in 2018, the start of 2018, and then The Other Wife, which is our reimagining of Jane Eyre at the start of 2019 as Juliet Bell. On a practical level, how does that work? How do you go about creating the characters and writing the novels together? So our, our general system is that we plan together and we write separately. So I'm not a big planner when I'm writing on my own, but when you're writing a collaboration, you sort of have to be. Otherwise, you know, Janet kills off a character that I was planning to use in the next chapter or something, and it's terribly awkward. Um, So we plan those books quite carefully. So what we generally do is either over lunch, we have a very nice restaurant in Reading where they're very understanding of us sitting there for five hours only ordering one meal each, Um, (laughs) uh, or at Janet's house because her office is bigger than mine. We will spend a few days together really planning in detail and then we go away and we write separately and then essentially we each do an editing pass. Um, So one of us will do the first edit and then one of us will do a second edit. So everything has been read by both of us multiple times by the time it goes off to our agent. And yeah, that seems to work. It helps that neither of us is desperately precious about our writing Neither of us tend to get upset if the other one takes out something that we've written. The first book together, we had a bit of a sort of difference of method when we came to editing because Janet Janet messaged me one day while she was doing an edit and said, oh, can we have a conversation? Can we Skype? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's sure, sure. So she came up on Skype and I could see that she was upset. So I was like, oh God, what's wrong? Are you ill? What's going on? What's the problem? And she went, oh, I need to talk to you. Um, I've moved a chapter. And I went, okay, yeah, that's fine. But what's wrong? Because moving a chapter to me is not a big deal. I do huge structural edits on my books. My first drafts are always a mess. I move things, take things out, dump chapters into different places. But Janet never does. Janet writes much cleaner first drafts than me. So to her, moving a chapter was a really big deal. And she was really worried that I was going to be cross with her. And I was just like, yeah, whatever, fine. So we have some differences of approach, but we've worked through them. And generally, yeah, it seems to work really well, but we don't actually write together in the same room. That I think I would find very unnerving. 
Well, it sounds like it's working. What about your latest Alice in May novel, All That Was Lost? Where did the inspiration for that come from? All That Was Lost is an interesting one because I had the idea years and years ago of uh, when I was writing rom-coms, of writing a rom-com where the main character was a stage medium. So someone who whose job was to talk to the dead. And I personally don't believe in mediums. If other people do, that's fine. I'm not going to be evangelical about it either way, but I personally don't. So my setup for this story was that she was a fake. And I started writing her and I couldn't find a kind of comedic way into it. All of the themes and the ideas I kept coming to were much more serious. So I sort of put it to one side for a bit because I knew I didn't want to write a book that wasn't a rom-com at that point in my career. Until I reached a point a couple of years later where I was kind of ready to try and get my teeth into something different. And that character idea of the stage medium had sort of always been there in the back of my head. So I came back to that. And All That Was Lost was the book that came out of it. And All That Was Lost is a book about loss, but also about identity, because it's about a stage medium who is towards the end of her career. She's in her late 60s and she can't talk to the dead, but she has had a 50-year career by this point based on the lie that she can. And I was just really interested in what that would do to a person to have not just a career, but by this stage, a whole life based on a lie. And not believing in mediums yourself, did you have to go into lots of research about the field before you started to write the book? Yes. Fortunately, around the time I was writing it, one of the channels a long way down the numbers, every morning had one of two or three different mediums on their TV shows. So I got into the kind of habit of watching them before I would go to write (laughs) um, every day, which was quite a nice little sort of routine to get me into the headspace of that kind of stage persona. And I've read also autobiographies of a couple of different quite well-known mediums, both in this country and in the US as well as reading books about the techniques of cold reading and those sorts of things. So it's quite interesting to try and get into the mindset of something that is completely different and completely alien to you. But I think as a writer, that's one of the excitements and one of the privileges is that you do get to explore worlds that your own life would never take you into. Now, can you tell us which author you've chosen to talk about for RNA60 and why did you choose her? So the author that I'm going to talk about, that I'm very excited to be talking about, is Dorothy Coombson. I chose her for the very simple reason that she's probably pretty much my favourite author. Obviously, all of us who read a lot have about eight favourite authors. They change at any given moment. But Dorothy Coombson is very consistently in my top three. And I love her writing. I love her sense of place. I love the atmosphere she creates. And I love her characterization more than anything. She writes such wonderfully three-dimensional characters. And she takes her readers into so many different areas of their lives that you see these people sort of in the round with all the different issues that they're dealing with. Um, So I love the complexity of her stories as a reader. And as a writer, I have huge admiration for her because her career has moved across genres through different styles of book, but always kept something at the centre that is identifiably Dorothy Coombson in terms of her voice and the way she creates worlds and the way she creates characters. And from a writer's point of view, that can be really hard to do once you have an established brand and you have an established name. It's very difficult sometimes it can be very challenging to move 
beyond that. Well, yes, that's a really interesting point, because one of my questions to you is going to be, throughout this series, all the authors we've been talking about can easily be described as romantic fiction authors, but you can't really pin Dorothy Coombson down in that way, can you? How easy do you think it is for an author to take their readers with them when they change genre? I mean, the readers could lose a sense of comfort and security they get from that author, couldn't they? How much of a challenge do you think that is for the author? I think it's a huge challenge. Um, and it's one of the ways in which, um, as a writer, I find Dorothy Kimson so inspiring is that she has done that. The sense of security and comfort you have as a reader with her books is firstly, just knowing that it's going to be really, really good, regardless of what genre label might be being pinned to it. It's going to be excellent. But I think there is something, there's a thread through all her writing that is about how she creates character and how three-dimensionally she creates character and creates the interrelationships between characters that is a constant thread. So her early novels would very definitely be described and I think were marketed as romantic fiction. So um, The Chocolate Run, for example, which I think was her second book, but it was the first one of hers that I read, was very definitely marketed as a sort of chiclet rom-com novel. Her kind of second phase, if you like, was put forward much more as sort of family drama, commercial women's fiction. Um, And then more recently, she's moved more into what you might describe as psychological thriller. But through all of those, there are nearly always a relationship story, not necessarily a happy ever after romance, but nearly always a relationship story. Sometimes looking at kind of what happens after happy ever after sometimes taking a character to the point where they decide that this person might be right for them right now, but possibly not forever. Sometimes taking a character to a point where they decide that actually they don't need a relationship right now. But there's nearly always some sort of exploration of a relationship or of a romantic love in some form. And I do really admire that ability to move across genres and tell different types of story, but to keep those common threads that keep readers engaged and keep readers coming back to, ah, yes, that's a Dorothy Coombson story. Exactly. Well, you mentioned that The Chocolate Run was the best book by Dorothy Coombson that you've read. How and when did you first come to it? I read The Chocolate Run during my creative writing degree, which would have been in the early 2000s. And I was introduced to her by a friend of mine, Holly, who was a big reader in that genre as a kind of, here's a new author in this genre that we both love that you might not have come across. Um, And I hadn't. And I read The Chocolate Run and then The Cupid Effect, which was her first book, quite close together. And The Chocolate Run is still a book that I come back to. The central character is so relatable and there's a thread in there about female friendship alongside the romance story. And we've talked about the different genres Dorothy Coombson's written in. Do you have a favourite type of Dorothy Coombson book or can you take something different from each of them? Yeah, I like her across her career, which is really interesting. I'm not a big psychological thriller reader generally. So I kind of went in, I think, to some of her most recent, more recent books, possibly not expecting to love them as much. But actually, some of my favourite Dorothy Coombson stories, um, The Rose Petal Beach, The Bright Mermaid, um, Tell Me Your Secret, would probably get classified under that psychological thriller heading. And I think it does come back to her characterisation and the way she creates relationships between characters that is just constant. Now, a question I ask everybody about their RNA 60 choice. Have you actually met Dorothy? Yes, I have met Dorothy. 
twice, actually. The first was at a book signing as a fangirl years and years and years ago, which I'm sure Dorothy doesn't remember because there was a huge queue. And I just sort of went, I think you're great. Sign my book. <laughs> but more recently at the RNA conference in 2019, I think I exercised a little bit of RNA chair's privilege and told the conference organiser that they needed to book Dorothy Coombson because she's awesome and please can I interview her? So I did. Um, so I interviewed her at conference last year, which was absolutely fantastic. She is every bit as glorious as I would have hoped she would be. So that was a delight. Well, you've mentioned what Dorothy's books mean to you as a reader. As a writer, do you think they've influenced your writing in any way? Definitely. Uh, possibly not as much as I kind of wish they would. I think I think they they fall into that category of books you wish you could write. Um, and I'm sure all authors have that. There are um, some writers that you read where your editor brain just switches off and you're just in the story. And afterwards, you almost can't unpick what's so good about it because it's all just there and it all hangs together. A lot of the time as writers, I think when we read, it's really hard to get out of editing mode. And it's really hard to stop your brain going, oh, inciting incident. This feels a bit of a long way in. Would I have put that near the start? All of those sorts of questions. But I don't do that with Dorothy Coombson's books. I'm just in the story. So I hope that I absorb some of her brilliance while I'm doing that, but probably not as much as if I consciously took them apart. And for anyone who hasn't read a Dorothy Coombson book, which one would you recommend they read first? Any or all of them. I think looking at more, more recent books, ones with more of a psychological thriller element, I would recommend The Brighton Mermaid. Well, as we finish, you're the current chair of the RNA. Could you tell us how that came about and also explain what it is that the chair does? OK, so yes, I've been chair of the RNA since um, 2019 and I'm standing down at the start of 2021. So prior to that, I was vice chair. Prior to that, I was on the management committee for two years and the chair is nominated by the management committee and then elected by the membership at our annual general meeting. And essentially, the way I tend to think of it is that the chair lets the management committee and all of our other volunteers do wonderful and brilliant things that they get all the credit for um, when they go brilliantly. And then the chair takes all the blame if things go horribly wrong. And that's my job in a nutshell. Very rare for things to go horribly wrong because the RNA is run by a fantastic team of volunteers who work incredibly hard. So I get to skate across their brilliance a lot of the time, which is rather lovely. But I have specific responsibilities like chairing management committee meetings. I meet virtually at the moment, obviously, lots of publishing industry people on behalf of the RNA. And I am essentially generally responsible for overseeing all of the RNA's activities. But that sounds like I do a lot more than I do a lot of the time. I, yeah, skate on the brilliance of other people's work. And what influence has the RNA had on you and your career? It's almost impossible to quantify. So I joined the RNA in 2011 as an unpublished author by joining the New Writers Scheme, which I know other guests on the podcast have talked about. Um, but it's a scheme for unpublished authors where you get a critique on a manuscript. Sweet Nothing went through that scheme twice. So it went through once, I edited it, put it through again. And the second time it went through, that reader said in their report, 
I think my publisher might be interested in this and gave me details of their publisher. And that is the publisher who ultimately did publish Sweet Nothing and the follow-up Midsummer Dreams. So in that real practical sense, it made a huge difference to my career. It got me published. But more roundly than that, writing is incredibly solitary, not just because you're in a room on your own, but you're also in a room on your own, inside your own head and inside your own thoughts. And it's very easy to get very insular when you're living like that. And the RNA gives you a community of people who understand the weirdness of that as a job and are your peers. So just that sense of having found your village is incredible and absolutely impossible to kind of quantify in any meaningful way. It's absolutely life changing. Alison May, thanks very much. It's been really lovely talking to you about your writing and, of course, the work of your RNA 60 choice, Dorothy Coombson. Thank you. And dear listener, thanks to you too for listening. This was the last episode in this series of Romance Aloud, but I hope you've subscribed to our podcast feed and that we can bring you new episodes in 2021. In the meantime, you can read more about the RNA on their official website at romanticnovelistsassociation.org. The show notes for this episode, with more information about Alison May and Dorothy Coombson, as well as all the other guests I've interviewed this series, can be found at windamaudio.com forward slash RNA. That's W-Y-N-D-H-A-M-Audio.com forward slash RNA. Thanks again for being with me during this series. Bye for now. Mystery.